All right, here we go. Good morning and welcome to the RPG Breakfast Club. This weekly show brings together various designers and makers to talk about subjects that are entirely up to us. I'm Douglas Cole from Gaming Ballistic and welcome to this Sunday session. Good morning. Uh, Andrew Raglan from Fancy Games. Uh, welcome, welcome. This is Lemmy Wall, the tavern man. That was Laramie Walsh, and he's a tavern man here at the tavern. And this is Pex. I'm the tavern custodian. You cut out a little bit there, Laramie. So I thought I'd help you out with the intro. And um, yeah, we work on things tavern related here. And this is Nick from Saga RPG. Uh, we're just a small little development company, but happy to be here, happy to listen, happy to contribute, whatever I can. So I believe uh, at the end of last show, we decided that uh, we were going to roll off today by talking about what makes interesting adversaries. And it's probably worth pointing out that there was a bit of a discussion in the Breakfast Club chat uh, before the show started, uh, talking about uh, what determines the suitability of a monster. I'm uh, talking about um, monster design as opposed to villain design. Um, could be interesting to, to get into. That one's certainly an interesting one. I think villain design to me is always an interesting uh, well to try to duck bucket into. Because I, you know, I always go back to the old literary uh, trope of his own story, and I think, as most people probably do, that those are the best villains are the guys that are just doing the right thing that they think it isn't necessarily a great monster view, but it tends, to, in my opinion, be a good villain view. And and that's to me at least sounds like a good place to start. Do we want to uh, differentiate between like? Monsters are, are things that are supposed to threaten the team psychologically or physically, and villains provide plot. Yeah, let's back up to that step. You know, I think we can really sum it up in one word, and that's intent. Um, the villain intends to cause problems. The monster is a problem simply by existing. I kind of agree with that. The monster is more of an instinctual. It's reacting to what it's surrounded by versus a villain who it's premeditated. It's plotting. It's thinking. Yeah, the monster may just be hungry. You happen to look like food. The villain, on the other hand, wants something that you have or wants you out of the way or, you know, there's a desire that is more than fundamental here more than one of the, the four apps involved here. Yeah, and from my perspective, a, a villain as opposed to a monster might be something that creates more interesting game choices for players if you're looking trying to look at it from a mechanics standpoint. 
Right. I mean, even a herd of cattle can be threatening and stampede you over, but they're simply migrating or moving. Right. The, you know, the, the conscious hand that sets that herd of cattle in motion, as opposed to a tree fell in the forest and the, cat, and the cattle stampeded, sort of the difference between a, a villain and, and either just a situation or kind of a monster. I like that, just differentiating between intent. I hadn't really and thought about it. Ripple's question. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. To pull in Ripple's question, uh, let me just read this in here. Uh, in your game, would you have a colossal minotaur, but instead of a bull's head, it had a labyrinth, and when you looked into it, you were transported within its maze, running through it, while people in the real world couldn't tell where you'd gone? The answer for most people is no, and my question is about this curation process. What ideas get added? What ideas get cut? What themes does a game get to have by having certain enemy types included in the game? And how does it get to other themes that the designer wants without putting in hybrids that are deemed unsuitable? To answer that for core step, uh, which is the fundamental mechanic under, underneath uh, both Earth Dawn and 1879, uh, what gets added and what gets cut is based largely on the game world and what is appropriate to the game world. Earth Dawn and 1879 have very distinctive identities. Uh, the Minotaur, the Labyrinth Minotaur would work for Earth Dawn. It would not work for 1879 because 1879 is a steampunk game with light magic. Earth Dawn is high magic and has some really weird creatures in it. So this thing that pulls one of your party into its internal labyrinth and then you have to face a physical challenge to the rest of the party without killing the thing before your party member escapes would, be, would fit with the, the idea of the horrors in Earth Dawn. And so the curation process there is determined largely by the overall themes of the game world. And Ripples, if you want to put something in the chat, am I answering your question at all, or am I going off on a tangent again? Right, and on that, I wouldn't expect to see like a clock mo clockwork monster in a Cthulhu-type world, unless it was like a sub-genre within that genre, for instance. So I really think it's up to, well, A, knowing the genre, and that's subjective, sure, but, um, and B, um, finding those things that fit within that genre and things that don't. I mean, that, that's a quote-unquote cop-out answer, but that's how I view it. The other okay, things let's I like pass over. I'm sorry. Go. I'll just Ripples is uh, wanting to hear from the rest of the game designers on the channel as to why you made the decisions to include specific monsters. You know, I guess at least from my perspective. Um, at the moment, I have a fairly narrow perspective because I'm trying to go deep with the, the Dragon Heresy setting, which is, call it fantasy Disney Vikings. I, I, I eschew horns on the helmets, but beyond that, 
it, it's a blend of hey here's something that you wouldn't expect that actually appears in in sagas and writings and and bits of history and 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 stuff and then here's what you need to expect because you're playing a game based on D D. um and so you know i need i have fairy so i need to have various levels of threat there and i've got dragonkin and you know lizard folk and kobolds etc uh and so i need to have that um for me at least the the challenges are are really more about motivation um and what triggers certain behaviors uh from the the various sentient and non-sentient threats uh on the flip side i did decide on removing certain elements uh i got rid of halflings because i'm like all right that's very tolkien i don't need them uh and i eliminated a couple character classes which isn't it is monsters it's not monsters but it also talks about what abilities are available in the campaign uh, and i got rid of aberrations i got rid of these otherworldly often lovecraftian things because not every setting needs to have lovecraft in it so that was just there was just a couple uh things that i removed um as not suitable to the setting not that an aberration wouldn't make an awesome thing and and the original concept did have such a thing but i decided eventually to distill and simplify so that was some of the decisions that i made uh, go ahead your dragon heresy is built on an existing rule set from uh another company right fifth edition yes so i mean even if you pull that stuff out of there if somebody someone could put it back in absolutely yeah i mean that's to me that's yeah, you're streamlining it, and it doesn't necessarily fit in your scheme. That's, I mean, I think you're just doing yourself a favor by kind of cutting it out of the concept, because if someone really wants it there, now it's back to being weird and strange, because it doesn't belong there. Well, like, as a DM, we all get the beast here. We look at it. Not everything that beast here is going to fit into what we're going to run. They do have, nowadays, they usually have the type, hey, this fits in the desert, this fits in the Arctic, there's no reason for the Arctic monster to be in the desert re area, unless there's a real magical type reason for it. Or even like when I'm designing random encounters, I, I, I look at the creatures, what fits in the surrounding area or the situations going on that, or, that are overwrite, like the terrain aspect. Like what can fit here versus what doesn't. To pull away from D&D &D a little bit here, uh, in other systems, you have creatures that are designed specifically for the setting. Uh, and you have to look at where those creatures belong in that setting. Uh, for example, for 1879, you've got two worlds. You have Earth, and then you have the Grovner world. And Earth it has magic returning and the old, some of the old folklore creatures starting to reappear. The Grove, on the other hand, was used thousands of years ago by a highly advanced alien race as a biological weapons testing ground. And you've got all sorts of weird stuff running around. The, the creatures of the Grove don't, uh, don't show up on Earth. There's, there's really no reason for them to show up on Earth. Uh, there's, while there is passage between the worlds, it's very closely guarded. Um, 
there are people who decide what gets through and what does not. And any of these big, nasty creatures trying to get through would be met with a barrage of cannon fire. So, you know, you have a, a, a controlled placement there. Um, you look at uh, some other systems, uh, Numenera, Shadows of Esteran, uh, so on and so forth. And there's, there's a fundamental design logic that goes into it that fits the genre. And I think this comes back to what Nick was saying, is that he stripped out some things because they didn't fit the genre. You're trying to, uh, trying to produce a game world that is cohesive and doesn't have things that stick out and are out of place. Uh, am I right there, Nick? Uh, I, I do agree with that. I, I think that might have been someone else who made that point earlier, though. Um, but I think you're right. I think another interesting way to look at this is is uh, you can put anything into any setting you want. And this can almost be a chicken and egg question. Uh, are, are you interested in blending certain types of uh, monsters or, or villains together? And if so, there's absolutely a setting for it. Uh, I think there's a setting for anything. Um, and I, I think it might just more be about finding a way to make that uh, palatable for someone who's, who's using your product. Like, well, how am I going to put these, you know, uh, the classic one would be machines and magic before that was ever done. That kind of seemed like two genres that wouldn't mix together. But of course now that's been done uh, many times and it's been done very well. So I, I think the good news is that there's always a way to do it. And the way is GURPS. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> yes. And, and Rips. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. Right, Rips, right, Hero. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many. Yeah. But, but I, I think even I, I want to sort of riff off what, what Andrew said, because, you know, when he said, let's not talk about D&D, &D, uh, because the premise of monsters and villains is, is really uh, system independent, or it should be. Um, the 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 monster is a threat of some type that is primal and instinctive and you know it is really separate and in many cases you can say the it's it's going to represent and like horror is a great place for monsters because it's archetype it's archetypes um whereas villains you know with much more conscious you need to understand what this sentient force wants and I have a, a framework that I go through that I ripped off from a uh, McChrystal Consulting Group. Uh, General McChrystal uh, did, uh, uh, he does his cross lead things and he goes through a strategic fr uh, framework that's on his website. And what I try and do for, for my villains is I pretend that they're the head of a ma major, like, you know, evil incorporated. And I'll go through, you know, their vision, their values, their strategy, their tactics, what resources they have, and and build that pyramid out uh, in in a couple, and then distill it down to a couple lines, uh, and that usually helps the game master understand how they're going to react to certain when the players start getting in their face. What are they going to do? Right, and I think it's interesting. Like some villains, they're just like 
built into the lore so much they're just kill on sight. There's no redemption for them kind of deal. And then again, you have those one-offs, and I'm going to mention the dirty word, Dritz Tear, from Forgotten Realms. Um, but there's just some things that are just, it's evil, doesn't matter what it says, kill it. How about a setting that maybe doesn't have monsters in it at all on this discussion? Let's take your modern, like a spy game. Do your base level grunt bad guys, are they your quote monster? Or is everyone just a lower tiered villain? I've always, I've always considered mooks to basically be creatures. Um, you know, they're the equivalent of the kobold swarm. You also have things like guard dogs in a spy game. Again, um, kind of a creature encounter. My take on it is, would they be doing what they were doing without somebody leading them or incentivizing them, in this case, in the spy market money? Or are they like a serial killer? They like killing, they just need some direction. Um, and they just so happen to be working for Super Villain A. And they would be killing regardless kind of deal. Versus the mook who's killing for money, which is more creature type, like uh, Andrew was saying, in my opinion. In a way, you could almost regard them as traps. You know, the guard dog is a trap. It's something yeah. that you may set off that you have to get around or deal with. It's, it's not really so much a, a creature encounter thematically. You know, and that, uh, because, you know, I have a consulting background, so everything has to be a two-by-two two matrix. If you subdivided um, villain and monster, and uh, if you subdivided each of those into sort of reactive and proactive, right, your classic mustache-twirling billions of dollars kind of uh, Dr. Evil would be a, an idiot, but a proactive villain. Whereas your mooks and thugs are and traps, I'm sorry, not traps, uh, would be reactive, right? There's intent there. There's intelligence, but they're only going to use that intelligence at the behest of somebody else. Uh, you know, a reactive monster is, is a trap, basically. He's only going to poke you if you poke it first. Uh, and a proactive monster is going to do what it does, but it's a force of nature. And so it does what it does, not because it's evil or somehow being directed. It's just... Uh, it's just hungry, as, as someone brought up before. Have you seen Blue Planet, uh, the natural selection book for Blue Planet? No. Um, it's probably the, the, one of the finest creatures books I've ever seen. It goes into why you would have a creature encounter with wildlife. Uh, it talks about predation. It talks about territorial defense, so on and so forth, and really digs into why you're going to have an encounter with some sort of wild animal. I yeah, I, I wrote a Go section ahead. on Dragon... Oh, I'm sorry, I was just saying that I have a section in Dragon Heresy about the why of encounters as well. Mm -hmm. I think a really good breakdown for that is the... the you know, if we're going to boil it down to that, the old uh, scorpion and the frog. Mm, because it's... yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not a villain, it's just a monster. It's obeying its nature. Absolutely. 
whereas whereas the villain has has intent, which we we started out talking about. Which then you is- have villain. You know, you were talking about irre- uh, irredeemable villains, things that you kill on sight. Um. What about a villain that you just flatly can't kill on sight? One that can can screw with you on a, a long term and that you can't quite get at for one reason or another. In a spy no, game, you've got somebody who's you know, some major CEO and has a wall of lawyers between them and you. Or like a little girl that's been possessed by a demon. Yeah, you could kill a little girl, get rid of both your problems, but... You're still killing a little girl, kind of deal. You kind of want to save her. Uh, she's not in control anymore. However, if you kill the girl, does it actually get rid of the possessed demon? It probably goes somewhere else to some other little girl, but it's out of your town, so it's not your problem anymore. Maybe it is. I mean, that that actually solves no problem. Now all you've done is, is murder an innocent child. Right, and it's out of your control. But the thing inside the little girl is capital E, evil. How do you get rid of that? No, that killing little girl kind of deal. Which is the plot line of Burning Desires for Earth Dawn, uh, which I wrote years ago. And how did you solve it? (laughs) (laughs) You have to figure out where the entity actually is and go confront it on its home ground in order to free the girl from it. Oh, that makes sense. I like it. Brutal. It was, yeah, it was brutal. And even then, you know, there is a chance that the little girl has been badly damaged psychologically, and you're going to have to deal with that. Right, it just adds more layers and more depth to the game. Now, the, there's a reason why these things are called horrors. You know, you're talking about capital E evil. You know, this is something that it has intent, but it also has an instinctual basis where it simply wants to hurt people. And it, it builds these elaborate plans to hurt as many people as it can. You're right. Absolutely. And I would say even an interesting mixture of that and, you know, blending character and villain is your really high-level bad guy that is, by nature, just trying to hurt people, but scheming to do as wide a spread as possible just for fun. Watching the board the- immortal or the psychopath or you know <clears throat> and, well, and, and, I, I, good I was just gonna say sometimes that's hard to to play you know what is it uh, actually I was just watching Game of Thrones season four where you had the they Tyrion and and uh, Jamie are talking about their cousin who had been Brain damage being dropped on the head as a kid and just was crushing beetles just for fun. And he was trying to figure out, you know, that Tyrion was like, there was a reason somewhere. And I was going to try and find out what it was. 
Right, but um, what, what about like the historical kind of evil? And what I mean by that is just like generations of people being brought up that orcs are bad, goblins are bad, you kill them when you see them, or they're going to kill you. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. And then on the reverse side of that culture, the goblins and the orcs have been taught the same thing. Humans have the things we want, they try to kill us, we try to kill them kind of thing. And is that more like a, I, I guess it's more of a uh, learned uh, type of evil in both cases versus it being them being evil themselves. Cultural I evil. I think, there we I go. Think There's the, the word I, I was think, looking I, for. I think the goblin orc human fight, I think that's one of those things that it's too easy to try to get cute and get into the minutiae and, oh, well, they're not all bad or I, I think it's one of those things that if you want orcs to be evil, they just have to be because if you start looking into the eyes of it too easily, it becomes less fun game stuff and far more. Do you really want this to be where your game goes? So I, it's it's one of those things I, I personally kind of avoid it because it's just if you want orcs to be humanoids and be a competent race, cool. If you want orcs to all be evil, evil crazy psycho monsters, cool. I don't really think there's a lot of room for the middle because I think it just gets muddy. In my opinion, it brings up the moral quandary to question. Just because it was born this doesn't make it evil. I like in my games. I like my evil just being evil. There's no like you were saying, Laramie. There's no little middle ground or in between. You can have that. You can do those kind of games. Certainly, I just don't like doing them myself. And this really is one of the things. It, a lot I'm of sorry. research you can look at. There's a lot of research you can look at if you. I mean, if somebody really wants to start getting into that quagmire, there's a ton of research on nature versus nurture and the entire extent that actual nature does play on things. You know, there have been um, twin studies, a number of which. Uh, a little nod to Douglas. I think most of the twin studies were out of Minnesota. That are you know two you know twins separated at birth and they would do comparative studies and all the twins they could find they'd given up for adoption and the ridiculous number of parallels these people would have to one another that there's a lot of evidence that far more of your upbringing is due to uh nature than we'd ever given it credence for so if you i mean if a person really wanted to get into that that's a that is a mess of research that i would not want to do just for a game well not to make this even more grim, but I remember this other study, yes, involving babies. They had a batch that was nurtured by mom, and then they had one that just fed their general needs. They sat in a room, they changed them when they needed changing, and fed them when they needed feeding. But that was it. That was the only social contact they had, and all those babies died. Oh, you, you cut out right at the end. You dropped your point. All, all those babies died. They, they all died. Okay. The batch that just had their basic needs taken care of, but no no interaction with like a mom or anything. And, and they died rather quickly too. I, I can't remember the yeah. timeline, but I do know that study and it was much faster than, uh, than you might expect. Interesting. And I forget which country did it, but they did. And that's, that was the result of it. They just no nurturing equals death. Now to, to divert back to a slightly less grim uh, aspect of the earlier conversation, uh, the whole cultural thing versus serious evil is one of the reasons why I've stuck with Earth Dawn for so long. Uh, I've been playing it for 20, uh, 26 years now since it came out, 
you have cultural collisions. Uh, there are the Crystal Raiders of the Twilight Peaks who are sort of airborne Vikings. <coughs> Their culture uh, says that possession is based on strength. If you can hold on to it, it's yours. If you can't hold on to it, it wasn't yours in the first place. This causes all sorts of problems when they run in, up against other cultures. Then you have the horrors, which are just flatly evil, and yes, you kill them on sight, because if you don't, they will eat your head. So, you know, you can kind of have both in the same game world. The, uh, the, the cultural issues and the, oh my gosh, it's a huge evil beast, kill it on sight. I don't know. It, it, there seems to be a preference, I think, uh, from what I'm hearing on the from the rest of the conversation about uh, going back about whether or not you have this sort of mixture or you have things much more black and white in your uh, in your game worlds. And you know, I th and the preference does seem to be for the black and white. If I'm saying, if I'm hearing correctly, um, but uh, I, I and speak. For I'll jump in and say, it, at least for me, um, I guess what I'd say is, you know, I, I remember when I was trying to come up with my game world and Ken Height was like, just use Earth, you big baby. And, and from that perspective, if you want complexities and gray and whatever, you don't necessarily need to plunk orcs down. If you're plunking orcs down, I think you're doing that to meet the player's expectations and your own expectations in a genre trope kind of way. You don't need works to portray a complex intermeshing of cultures. You can do that with people rather well. Um, so at least for me, you know, it, it, it would be fairly straightforward to, uh, to sort of say, look, you know, if you're going to borrow from these classic tropes of, of, of quote unquote form evil races from from the late seventies and early eighties and and uh, some of the folklore, uh, you're doing that to invoke a particular feel and to say, ooh, look, I'm going to be subversively subversive and and rather than just use people, which everyone knows are shades of gray, I'm going to throw this thing at you that you think is black and white that it isn't. I don't know that that to me that is a little bit bait and switchy, right? <laughs> I don't think one thing we didn't cover yet in, in this grand scheme of things is the 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 top king pawn thing, the, the gods themselves. They use the mortal beings kind of as their little pawns, steering them in whatever cosmic force, good, evil, or somewhere in between. A lot of settings cover gods and mortals, very few that don't. So I guess where I'm going with this is what are your guys' thoughts on is the evil guided more by the deifying force, or is it more of a natural, instinctual thing? I think a lot of that comes down to preference and setting, and I'm going to actually boil that back into what we just got done talking about. Um, I, I think that is, I think a lot of those things come down to player and GM preference and expectation. So to the discussion wow. of gray area, for example, I don't, I'll, I will pick on myself, I don't like a lot of gray area in my gaming just because in my real world life i have to deal with a lot of moral ambiguity and 
once every other week when I get to sit down at the table and throw dice at things. I I don't want a I don't want an every week moral quandary. It's okay to have those spring up on occasion, but for the most part, if I'm running into a herd of orcs, I'm okay with just running into a herd of orcs. And to that end, as far as the gods thing goes, I would say that I think allow as a me as a GM, I think it's perfectly permissible to let a race of something be good or evil, a tribe of something to be good or evil. And then if you want to let individuals out of that, going back to your previously damned discussion of Trizit, um, you know, if someone wants to deviate from that, that's their choice. But I think there's a place for both of those things to be existent within table parameters. Right. And how many human villains have we seen spawn out of happy-go-lucky <laughs> villages and cities that become villains later on due to whatever backstory circumstance as the opposite of Drizzt, just more on a humanity side kind of deal. Uh, I, I'll, sorry, I real quick, I've got uh, real life things to attend to. Just to, I say that. So with respect guys, uh, enjoy the rest of the discussion. I got to bounce. Stay awesome. Bye Laramie. Yeah, I mean, just to pop in there, it's it's the in terms of hey, this person could have been good, could have been evil, but he went evil. You know, I, one of the the two actually relatively recently, two very interesting villains. One was Syndrome from the Incredibles movie, right? Is all he wanted to do is be a hero, but when he was rejected by his hero, he said, "All right, fine, I'll do my own thing." And what might be, at least in my mind, one of the most compelling villains I've seen in a superhero movie is uh, Vulture from the Spider-Man Homecoming, who you could totally relate to, right? right. Exactly, I mean, yeah. Right? Yes. Absolutely. He's like, he, yeah, he was the villain of the piece, but you're like, okay, yep, that happened. Yep, 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 okay. Who am I rooting for? And you got to think to yourself, would I be doing the same thing if that happened to me? Probably. Right, right. I mean, it, it's that is a great example of someone going through wants and needs of of a real person and saying yeah you know this person you can you can see it he was just better at it than most um so it was you know getting to the original premise in terms of what makes a good villain you know um as opposed to just oh well, yeah we're gonna the, the villains are an invading horde of orcs and we're gonna oppose them because they're an invading horde of orcs and why are they invading because they're a horde of orcs. That's what they do, right? That's it's fun. Outsword and have at, right? You know, it's a great way to spend a couple hours on a Saturday. Um, but you know, if you're looking for a little bit more relationship matrix, you know, uh, you can't go wrong with someone who's seen and done and had to do the things that uh, the vulture that uh, Michael Keaton's character had to do. Right, and I think I think like you were saying, I can relate to a character much more like the Vulture than I can since we're using the movie media here. Hannibal Lecter, I can't relate to that guy. He's just evil, crazy evil, in my opinion. Methodical, of course, but yeah. Let's see. So, so what makes a really interesting villain then? is someone that is not only up to something complex, but who you can at least vaguely identify with. 
If you've got somebody who is hurting a lot of people just because it's fun to hurt a lot of people, that's not really a villain. That's a monster, right? I would agree. I would agree. I'm going to, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Oh, it just, thinking, you know, that regardless of intent and the fact that this is a sentient being, they are carrying out a, a fundamental desire, a fundamental hunger, you know, looking to, to cause as much pain as they can. That's, that's really, that, that's monstrous. It's not villainous. I, I would agree. The phrase that I used in that that Dragon Heresy excerpt that I threw up there, uh, which is fundamentally systemless, there's no mechanics in that description, is is if you're operating at a macro level, you're a monster. I'm going to hurt and kill and maim because I hurt and kill and maim. Lather, rinse, repeat. 20, go to 10. Um, and that's, you know, even if you've got a notionally sentient creature, if what they do is is, you know, See, see blonde girl, kidnap blonde girl, horribly torture blonde girl, move on to next blonde girl, like your classic serial killer behavior. There may be a triggering incident, but once the macro gets going, it, it goes to an inevitable conclusion. Um, not only is that monstrous because it, it doesn't really involve the, the thought process there uh, or anything more strategic, um it's actually fairly easy to interdict right you can just it, it's not a it's it, they're they're very local so it's a local problem whereas villains tend to cause more global and i don't mean global necessarily worldwide but there's a strategic issue that they're responding to i'm going to throw in probably the ultimate gray character here um frank castle punisher is he evil or is he uh, instinctual monsters type. You know that really depends on which incarnation you're talking about. <laughs> Fair. Um, I, I guess we'll go for modern here. Let's go for the Netflix modern Punisher at the moment. That since everybody may know that it's more relevant as today. I mean, there there were some moments there where he just did it for the sure pleasure of it. Yeah, he had a goal in mind, but the ways he went about it were very satisfactory toward his personal desire to bring pain and punishment. <sighs> yeah, I've only seen him in Daredevil. I haven't seen either of the pen uh, seasons of uh, The Punisher standalone, so I'm going to have to recuse. Or, well, yeah. we can go with the Punisher you're more familiar with. Uh, which one do you want to go with? The Vietnam Punisher? Uh, the one that I'm most familiar with is the old classic Punisher uh, who was uh, the, yeah, the Vietnam vet who came home and then his family is killed by organized crime and goes on this long crusade to exterminate the uh, criminals that and the, and the whole class of criminals that, that caused his pain. I see that one as more monstrous okay. in a way because it's looped into that macro that Douglas was just talking about. Um, I have been hurt. I will hurt others. 
and he keeps looping on that until that that loop is finally broken. Yeah, I think I think you have a point, Andrew. And if he has, uh, he's he's definitely not pure evil, right? Pure evil would be causing pain or harm or uh, destroying things simply for the sake of that. Whereas he has, I would say, a very human motivation behind all his actions. Uh, that being said, Punisher definitely loses sight of that sometimes. And I think I think my my perspective has always been that he becomes numb. Uh, I, I always consider him more, we're going to use the alignment scale here, I always consider him more like lawful evil. He does have a code somewhat, but... Everything else yeah, beyond yeah, that codes, yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah, but it but it is evil whether he intends it to be or not. Some of the time, because he certainly does some horrific things, which makes him interesting. And again, tragedy is what stirred this him becoming what he became. His whole family got killed. Would we be doing the same thing? Would we want vengeance right, kind of right. deal, vigilante style? He's 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 relatable um, because of the the human motivation. Like like we've been saying with the other villains, I think that's I think he fits into what I've been hearing from you guys is that uh, the villain has a, a a relatable motivation a lot of the time as opposed to just being a monster. You know, and part of it is the the a villain will have a victory condition. A monster probably doesn't. Yeah. Right. I have conquered the world. Mm-hmm or I've conquered the East Coast, or I've destroyed uh, organized crime, so now I can stop. Now I right. can stop. I've won. Yeah. Whereas a monster is like, well, I need to eat, so yeah. I'm going to eat. And, and I'm going to be fact, hungry tomorrow, so I'm going to eat then. And then uh, Yeah, that's true. And in fact, a villain, uh, you know, classically we think of villain as evil, but does a villain even have to be evil, or does it just have to have an opposing motivation that might cause something horrible from somebody else's perspective, right? Let me bring in a couple from literature. Um, Ozymandias from Watchmen yep. and Riff Aaron from the Shaanor trilogy by C.J. Cherry. All right, we all know Ozymandias, right? Yes. Yeah. So he's trying to save the world by doing this horrible thing to New York City. And he pulls it off. He, he does this horrible thing, and it has all these repercussions, and he moves on. Now, of course, it goes wildly awry because he didn't take into account a few things, but you know he has this definite goal. Riff Aaron, have you has anybody read the Shaanor trilogy by C.G. Cherry? I unfortunately have not. No, I must say it is on my reading list. Short version: star-spanning culture with multiple species existing in a precarious balance of power and economic trade. The main characters get involved in politics and smuggling and all sorts of crap going on, and they are actively working to try and sort this mess out and set things to rights. They're being pursued by a cop from their homeworld. Now, the cop, Riff Aaron, is a villain in the piece, but is also, in a way, 
a, a balancing factor because she's trying to enforce the law of their homeworld. She's trying to arrest the main characters because they have broken a number of their homeworld's laws. And there's this question all through it. Is she really a villain? She has the authority to do what she's trying to do. And the homeworld, the, the main characters are clearly in the wrong as far as the legal system goes, but they're clearly in the right as far as the moral choices they're making and as far as trying to save the larger interstellar civilization. So you have this, this fairly complex character that I would argue isn't, and it doesn't really come to the point of villain, but more opponent. And at what point does an opponent become villainous? Let me throw that question out. At what point does somebody who is opposing the party become a villain? I think whenever he crosses the party's moral boundary line, whatever that may be, and depending on what skew, how 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 lawful or how unlawful your group may be, that line may be way far away, or maybe really close, depending on your your table or the uh, player players, I should say, depending on them. Yeah, I think the you know at at some point, and and, and it has its place, but at some point, I think that. Getting into minutia uh, is like, you know, uh, President Coin from The Hunger Games, right? On the one hand, you're going through a lot of it and it's like, oh, this person's trying to overthrow the, the, the bad guys in the Capitol. And then in the end, you see that, well, now she's just a different selfish politician. And, you know, eventually she gets her point. Um, but, and so you have that sort of crossover in, in the reader's mind. Uh, and it may wind up being that the uh, difference between an antagonist and a villain um, or a counterpoint to the players and a villain is, is simply in the player's mind that at some point the players are going to decide, yeah, this person is now acting at such cross-purposes to us that either we're the villains of the piece, uh, which if you've been in some of the groups that I've been in is, yeah, probably, um, or... They've, you know, this other person has become villain status because, you know, it's not just that, it's not just that they're trying to get something different than us. It's what they're trying to get is on balance, quote unquote, wrong. For and, or, and wrong is going to be very relative. Well, here, here's a scenario: um, culture, party encounter, said culture, or has lived in said culture, and slavery is acceptable. And the party wants to free the slaves and do the whole Spartacus bit. Are, are they really the heroes in that instance when it's socially acceptable in that society? Right. Uh, it's, it, it's a great question. And you wind up with a moral quandary between the, what is legal and accepted and what is right and moral to the players and to their characters. I, I right, and there's... 
Go ahead, sorry, please. Oh, sure, no worries. I, I think, Andrew, that's the point is uh, what's the perspective of the characters? Because uh, ultimately in the game, we want them to probably be the deciders if there's a gray area like that, what's what's a villain and what's not. Give them some agency. And these are fantastic questions. And I think these are what makes some of our games really exciting is the players have to go through this and think for themselves, A, what would my character do? But I'm struggling with this and what I would do versus what's legally acceptable. And they have all these things to figure out for themselves. And that, that's one of the beautiful parts about our hobby. I actually had to deal with or chose to deal with the, the slavery question because in my little... Uh, Nordic fantasy world, there are thralls because, you know, that's that was part of the culture. Um, and so I wrote basically a little box that uh, said, all right, well, how are you going to deal with this? Um, and, you know, basically what I said is, look, you know, there's a couple things that you can do to tone down what was basically a, a state of near non-personhood while you were a thrall. Uh, you can make it more like indentured servitude where... They have rights, but they're paying off a debt. But, you know, if you want to take it on head to head and the party wants to say, OK, we're going to change the culture and flee the slaves. Good luck with that. But that's, you know, that that's for a group to decide. And I hope you fare better than Spartacus. Well, I mean, even look like American culture, what happened to the Americans versus the British? I mean, technically, what we did wasn't legal. <laughs> but here we are. Yeah. Earthstone so, addressed this. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, I was, I was, yeah, please continue. Earthstone addressed this with uh, the people of Barsave, which is where the most of the game action takes place, versus the Theron Empire. Barsave used to be a province of the Theron Empire, and then the Dwarven Kingdom of Thrall got everybody together and said, look, uh, we produced this document. Uh, we believe that slavery is wrong. We want to banish the practice from the province. And they convinced the other cultures of Barsave to band together and reject the, the Theron practices. The, this led to a couple of wars between the Therans and the Barsavians. Uh, big campaign-level stuff. Uh, we've got a couple of source books to cover it all. The Theron Empire is seen as villainous because they practice slavery. It, it is a defining characteristic that says, okay, the, the, this nation the, is evil because they do this bad thing. Uh, it led to a, an extensive adventure for my players where they were in a Theron city they discovered that a band of Theron slavers had crossed the border, kidnapped a whole village full of dwarves, and were about to sell them into slavery. The players ran this whole big Mission Impossible type scenario where they bought the dwarves and smuggled them back home. So we had this, this major story of, okay, you know, the party is breaking the law because they feel that this law is wrong and confronting this, this issue. 
that you wind up, you know, defining an entire culture as evil because of a practice that they follow, that the, the party finds repugnant. Right, and then on the party question, is it the players or is it the um, characters at that point that are making those decisions? Yeah, I think it's a slippery slope and um, a thing in our craft that gets honed over time, that kind of separation that we have to deal with. And, and let's yeah. – I would actually say that in, in most cases where you're dealing with uh, ancient sensibilities, um, the concepts of, of freedom and free will and everyone an individual actor and anyone can do anything that, that defines at least what we'd like to think of as the best instincts in the United States um, are, are really don't even enter into it. Uh, and, and so by, by setting up a Norse fantasy culture where the players are expected to overthrow the institution of thraldom, you're deliberately encouraging player over character in, in, in that way, right? You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't think, you'd be, unless you're coming from the outside, you would be brought up to think that those thralls had it coming. Or, or that was just their place, or whatever, whatever, right? All the things that were used successfully and horribly to keep people in a particular status, and in some places still are. Um, so I think by encouraging that kind of culture clash, um, you're deliberately stepping into a zone where the players are feeling more comfortable. That's not a bad thing, but it is what you're doing. Right, I agree. It's an intentional thing you're putting on them, um, and I, I think it's perfectly fine, honestly. Yeah. No, I mean, because I mean, and and I can't. Rem I think it was Saga who said it. You know, I'm sitting down. I'm not. I'm sit not sitting down to do role playing games to solve the world's problems. Right. If I want to solve the world's problems, I'll get out in the street and or whatever, and go to politics or go to business or whatever, and try and you know, if I see people hungry, you feed them. I don't play a game about feeding. So, you know, from an escapism perspective um, and, and from a, hey, this is a game and I'm here with my friends to have fun, you know, if, oh, I'm just going to roll over and let this person abuse this person in game because they're a slave and that's what has it coming. Uh, if that's not where the players are, then that's, that's just fine, right? I mean, if you sit down and say, oh, great, I roll. Now it's time to have uncomfortable moments for four hours because the game master keeps throwing images of horrible slavery at us. If, they're, if he's doing that, it's either to provoke the reaction that you expect, which is some kind of uprising or whatever, um, or he's just being a dick. <laughs> yes, which, which we've all experienced before, I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't go into these themes unless the players were okay with it. Yeah. You know? Right. You have to you have to balance out um the kind of story you want to tell against the kind of story the players want to have. If you're not delivering the story the players want to play through, they're gonna find another GM. And right, so right, 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 right
Right. Some of those hits come up over play or you have, I know this is a thing of controversy. You have that session zero, which some people don't like. Some people do. Um, anyway, uh, that you, you set those boundaries up first. Um, and if you go to the table, there are no boundaries. I think that's perfectly fine. But if you say, hey, this is off limits to me. I take this personally kind of deal. I don't want to play that. Um, you have to respect the player's opinion on that. And some of that's on the player's side. They have to come forward and they have to say those things or no one knows. Right. And and, and that really gets down. So, you know, the, the thing about session zero is is that, you know, if you're playing a game about killing monsters and taking your stuff, taking their stuff, you probably don't need <clears throat> session zero. Because regardless of what characters they bring to the table, it's tightly constrained and everyone is focused on killing monsters and taking their stuff. Um, if you're doing a game of social exploration and interaction and factional uh, 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 factional uh, repercussions, then what kind of, of scenarios are you looking to, to deal with is, is going to be something that you want to establish. But, but, yeah. Let's see. We got one more thing on our list here. I want to make sure we get to it before time ends here. Uh, redeeming qualities or redemption. The heel turn. Segway. Oh, redeeming qualities redeem in a villain? villain? Right. What makes them redeemable if they, if they can be? If they do enough good in the world, can they undo the evilness of being labeled evil? Well, you can. Is the Punisher redeemable? You know, we talked about the Punisher a little bit, and what's their motivation, and what's the, what's their reason for doing it? Um, did they have an experience that drove them to do this? Uh, and to me, I, I I do like redeemable villains. I know it's gray area, but I am a gray area guy. Uh, I think that if you give, uh, if you make a villain gray area. Uh, I think it can allow for some really interesting choices within the game for players and not just choices about morality, but it can really lead to some interesting game design choices, right? Um, depending on how you deal with a, with a villain. Victor Von Doom. Mm-hmm. You know, the, up until they yep. crashed his face and sent him back to Latveria, which I thought was a horrible <laughs> retcon. Uh, you had a really interesting storyline going of having come to the realization that the problem was him all along and trying to, in a sort of 12-step program thing, fix some of the damage he'd done. It was a really interesting uh, storyline. I'm sorry they decided to abandon it the way they did. Um, you know, what makes a villain redeemable to some extent is a choice the villain makes themselves. They have to just make a decision and come to a realization that they have been causing damage and that they want to either, either stop or actually actively undo that damage. So a sincere acknowledgement of what I've done's wrong and I'm trying to correct the matter is what would make a character redeemable. 
Yeah. Well, it starts I, them on the path of redemption, certainly. I think I think that's true, and um, one interesting thing that we that we could possibly do as game creators is is give the players an opportunity to to lead the, not make the villain change their ways, but uh, give them a chance to show them what they've done. Right? If you can integrate that into mechanically into something, then the the players may have been able to. Uh, contribute to changing uh, a villain who may have been, you know, very threatening. A good sense of accomplishment potentially from that. Right. Um, just to reflect back to our own society, looking at like the prison system, a lot of people acknowledge what they did was wrong. Um, and as a society, we still, I guess, treat them as damned because of what they did was so heinous. I'm just wondering if there's something so heinous in a game setting that would not be redeemable no matter if you acknowledge what you did was wrong or right or, or what you did was wrong rather. I think it depends partly on genre. And in, 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 uh, Ender's game and the, and the sequels, um, it, uh, they, they play that out, right? Where Ender is, is considers himself irredeemable because of his gen of the genocide of, of the, uh, the bad guys from the first book, right? So he's he's he certainly could be considered a villain from especially from the uh, the insect race's perspective, and he considers himself a villain. Um, but uh, you know, then there's lots of people who don't. There's a question of culpability. Um, Ender did not know that he was actually attacking the insectoid homeworld he thought it was a simulation at least in the books and yep. you know on discovering that he'd actually carried out this attack he was so horrified that he left society <coughs> <coughs> used uh, the uh, travel mechanism to leap himself forward in time and escape from the the milieu in which he'd done this horrible thing. Basically exiled himself. So, yeah, that's, a, that's actually an interesting example of someone who did not think of themselves as the villain until this revelation came about. And if the players can be active in bringing that revelation to the villain or the antagonist and making them see what they've actually done, then the players have agency in the whole redemption and heel turn arc. Yep. That's, I think that's very spot on. Yeah. And you know, we, I actually had something like agency. that happen. I had something like that happen in a old star, a star Wars D six wag star Wars game. Where two creatures of the same, two people, one player character, one NPC, uh, and the NPC was, uh, you know, a dark Jedi, um, had turned to the dark side. And they fought a little bit with their lightsabers, because that's what you do in Star Wars. And then there was a bunch of soliloquies and back and forth, and, you know, you're destroying the culture which you think that you are trying to protect, and blah, blah, blah. And there was some good dice rolls and some great role playing. And Bad guy turned off his lightsaber and, and had a moment of clarity because 
uh, and was you know stepped away from from the anger, hate, fear, aggression thing. And it was a great moment that uh, sort of came up uh, in play. Um, you know, and that I don't know, I don't remember if he stayed redeemed or not, but uh, you know, having that uh, that that opportunity to do that uh, requires both the players allowing it to happen as well as the uh, uh, the game master providing opportunities. <clears throat> right. Very dangerous. Kill on sight. If that's yeah. just the rule of it, then you're not going to get the... Uh... Right. <laughs> it's, it's a tricky balance, isn't it? Because, it, it, you know, it can be tempting to just sort of uh, guide, guide players towards... Uh, doing, doing what you want them to do through the text or, or leading them by the nose, but to actually give them the agency to make a decision on, on uh, what they're going to do with a particular villain through uh, either a moral situation or maybe, uh, you know, it could even be a split second decision in gameplay. Uh, that's, to me, that's more exciting and, and intriguing. I like it. <laughs> I really like the, these topics we did today. I think we could go on and on about these and talk about each bullet point for hours. Honestly. Oh, definitely. Just working through the examples and analyzing each one could, could you know, be an ongoing series. Definitely. Yes. Well, here's one I'll throw at you guys. What is your all-time favorite villain? I'm going to have to think for a minute. That is a that's a big question, but I like it. And I, I will add a secondary question onto that. Why? I'm going to run with Ozymandias. Right, right, right. That's a good one. If nothing else, because of that wonderful, wonderful line, what do you think I am? Some kind of Republic serial villain to tell you my plans so you can stop me at the last minute? I did it a half an hour ago. He was yeah. constantly that one step ahead of everybody. That that is something I just want to toss in. That is really hard to do when you don't control the script. It's not it impossible, can be. but it's really hard. It can be, but he read the evil overlord's handbook. This is something that I tell my players. Uh, you know, if you're up against one of the big villains in my game world, you can expect that they have read the evil overlord's handbook. Their ductwork will be too small to crawl through. He cut out at the end there. Oh, the the evil overlord's handbook, their ductwork will be too small for the to to crawl through. Yeah, that's a, it, it it is it is yes, it, it's a, it's a great I, I was just saying the the kind of I'm one step ahead of you is is you know, there's there's preparatory stuff like ductwork and full face helmets and 
you know, the devastatingly attractive and yet uh, slightly rebellious, rebellious daughter uh, kind of, uh, you know, your trusted lieutenants will actually be trusted and all, all, all that good stuff. Um, I'm, I'm more talking about the, the, uh, ah, but I had that in my, my evil plan all along kind of thing. At some point it's, it's hard to do that because, um, every James Bond villain ever. Well, yeah, there's, I mean, it's, it, but the, the, the thing about that is that with, whether it's James Bond or the Watchmen or any, passively consumed media i can pull off the aha this was part of my plan all along because i can either write a flashback or or do whatever um it, it's it becomes challenging when if you have players with agency and and can do almost anything right so the the just from a practical perspective it can be difficult to pull that off actually i played in the game gurps had a uh uh, a pyramid article that showed up written by the assistant line editor, uh, Jason Levine, um, called Actually I Saw That Coming, which was a neat way of retconning advanced preparation by people like Batman. Um, where you could say, oh, you know, now, oh my goodness, I, I, as a player, I didn't expect the bad guys to send in an airstrike because we didn't know that they had access to that that never came up but my character would have known that and and so you know i've actually managed to bring a, a remote air defense tower and it's on that building over there um that was sort of an extreme example but i can assure you that that actually fit with the game that we were playing but there are ways of of, of doing that um but it uh those are I, I find those more satisfying to be player facing. If it's if it's villain facing, then it can be a little bit uh, misunderstood by the uh, by the by the players. I'll go next here. Honorable mentions though: Joker and Hans Gruber. Um, both I love those characters deeply, but for my ultimate villain, I'm going to have to go for the T1000 from Terminator Two. Just because it's just pure evil, kill it before it kills you kind of deal, up into the very end. It's just one of those, and it's exciting all the way through. I, I love that character. He hardly says any dialogue whatsoever, but his actions speak for him. And that, to me, is what makes a great villain, is the actions, um, a lot of the times, uh, really speak more to myself than uh, hours of dialogue. Although I think based on our uh, heuristic, uh, Terminator is what would you call he's a, a reactive villain or a proactive monster? Well, he's programmed from Skynet, technically. There you go. <laughs> so, so, so it's instinctual. Right, right. Yeah. You could call yeah. him an avatar of Skynet. There you go. Right, or his mm -hmm. ultimate villain number one backup. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I really found, um, I guess the you know, tomb, you know, the 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 classic villain trope is really shows up a ton in in the superhero genre. So I really liked a couple of things. I liked obviously we talked about the Vulture earlier from the Spider Man movie. Um, you know, while there were some 
unbelievability to it. I, I really enjoyed the interaction uh, between T'Challa and Killmonger in Black Panther. Um, you can poke holes in it um, quite a bit, but you can do that to any comic book movie because it's done because of comic books and fun. But uh, so that was that was kind of fun. But the the I really liked the I could re- I really enjoyed uh, Michael Keaton's character and, and Homecoming as as a top notch villain. Um, Ozymandias was good. Um, let's see what else. What else? What else? Easier to go the other way, I think, and say the villains that you just absolutely hated. Hated so much you loved them, kind of you. No, yeah. no, just, just, just. Wow, this was just somebody did not think this through. Like, what was, what was somebody thinking in, in, in doing, in, in doing this kind of plot line? Um, Steppenwolf from Justice League comes to mind. Right? Kylo, very man. one note. The most forgettable villain of all. Right, 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 exactly. Yeah, right, like, you know, it's a plot device, not even, you know, uh, yeah. The, yeah. Uh, some uh, uh, Kevin Spacey's Lex Luthor was good, um, and of course, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the original Lex Luthor. Um, I'm absolutely blanking on the actor's name. Gene Hackman was, and you know, but those were again relatable, right? He wants to make up for things that he didn't have as a child. Evil genius, prove himself, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a lot of that relatability and and how would this person get to this position? Uh, I think the hyperkinetic way that they portrayed him in, in the most recent movies was, was not effective, right? You didn't look at Lex Luthor and say, oh, I see how this guy became the way he is. So, I mean, that was a bit of a, uh, of a miss of an iconic villain. Ah, Princess Bride. Good, 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 yeah, good. that's a great one. That is. Um, I don't, I don't... In the world sometime. I don't know that if I could choose an absolute favorite, uh, but I would mention uh, it from the novel or mm. it, uh, and not just specifically Pennywise. Although both Tim Curry and Bill Skarsgård are certainly creepy in their own rights in those roles, uh, it feeds off your fear, right? It is your fears, um, and it's yeah, it's. I don't even know if it's pure evil or not. It's otherworldly. You're sort of meant to not be able to understand it if you read the book. It's, you know, you can't even see its true form. Uh, but in a way, it could be construed as a plot device because it's you know that story is really more about the characters coming together and you know uh, going from kids to adults. But uh, isn't that what any good villain should do? Is is uh, help develop the characters too? And I think it really does that. That is a good one. You know, in the Earthdown system, it would be a horror. It would be one of the greater horrors. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's feeding off of pain and fear. Yeah, this is one of the big nasties. Yeah, and it also has personality. Uh, in, in the mm-hmm. form of in the book, you know, I mean, it's it's all of the classic villains. It's Dracula. It's creature from the Black Lagoon. It's uh, the Mummy. But even just being Pennywise is is bad enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what was you know who was a fun, really fun villain that kind of a great. Uh, so you know, uh, the 
the main character, the assassin from Last Action Hero. Oh, the one with the glass eye. Oh, the eye. Oh, the glass yeah. eye. I yeah, don't yeah, remember yeah, his yeah. name. No one knows his name. Just knows he has a glass eye. Yeah, he was a lot forever. of fun. <laughs> you know. Oh, just, you want to talk about yeah. a good guy? I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Go ahead. I was, I just was more going off on. Yes, you know that was. He was a fun character because he was a great reflection and so self-aware reflection of the difference between what we expect in a movie versus what we expect in reality. Where the sirens, where the screams in this world, the bad guys can win, right? It's just a, just a wonderful, creepy soliloquy. And it was effective because it struck home. Right. And you also have that other villain in the movie, the, the guy with the ax. And I would call him a monster. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah. Something Mage just pointed out, how a good guy went bad. Let's bring in yeah. Falling Down. Sure. Because there is that oh. wonderful moment where uh, the main character says, wait a minute, when did I become the bad guy? And it just stops everybody. And I mean, the, the audience was looking around going, Wait a minute. Yeah, uh, it, it really was a, a a hammer blow of a line that they they built up so carefully to. Yeah, and that whole movie, you're right. I mean, that whole movie is a hammer blow, and it might be that it leads up to that line specifically, but it it takes you a while to figure out where that movie's going the first time when you, if you don't know about it and haven't seen it you know, like how far is this guy going to go and I think one of the beautiful scenes in that movie is we've all been well yeah dicked over by the breakfast hour closing at McDonald's or whatever and let's be honest how many of us wanted to shoot up the goddamn place when that happened <laughs> you may have thought it but he acted on it right just the guy that won't give him change for a, for the phone unless he buys something, and then the thing, and then he can't buy anything cheap enough to still have the money left for the phone call. The, you know these little these frustrations build up, and Douglas's character acts out from them. Yeah, I think that uh, the falling down. If he's that's the most relatable example, right? And now that I'm thinking about it, I, th I think a movie with all villains, doesn't matter who you really root for, root for, is in Pulp Fiction. I think all of those characters are villain characters. <laughs> oh, jeez. <Yep. laughs> Game of Thrones dead, is baby. very similar. <laughs> There's like one or two sympathetic characters in it. The rest of them are all pretty much different va variants of Rat Bastard. Mm -hmm. Oh, I made the mistake yeah. of reading uh, a book by Gillian Flynn. Um, I think it was called Gone Girl, where there are no heroes. Everybody in it is despicable, and you're just, it's, it's like watching a train wreck. Can't, I actually couldn't stop. get through, I, I, I had... Uh, the play musical Chicago recommended to me, and I started to watch it. I'm like, 
I, I, I just wound up turning it off. I was like, okay, I, I, I get it, but all you, I can't. I, there's no one in this character that I actually want to watch on in this show that I want to watch on screen, singing or not. <clears throat> oh, the two of the main characters are are just despicable. Um, you know, Roxy is such a terrible person. You know, it, it, I, I feel so sorry for her husband. <laughs> so, shall we open it up? Yeah, uh, well, uh, we'll do our sure, emotions, and then uh, we'll head into that. You want to start, Douglas? Sure. <clears throat> so, uh, Gaming Ballistic is about to have a really interesting year. We are uh, closing up with... Um, the Lost Hall of Tears 2nd Edition, which is a revised and expanded version of a, uh, of a quest. Uh, if you have the GURPS version of it, Hall of Judgment, I'm basically turning the Dragon Heresy 5e Swords and Wizardry into that. Um, next up on the docket, is, uh, which will hopefully crowdfund in the next month, is Citadel at Nordvorn, another Nordland Torengar adventure. Um, this one is... More of a mini setting, lots of town, lots of interactions, lots of NPCs, lots of problems, but not go find the MacGuffin and bring it back kind of quest. Uh, we're, I, we have agreement between Steve Jackson Games and myself that uh, Gaming Ballistic will publish 10 third-party fantasy trip uh, adventures um, in the next year. Um, and I've got authors lined up. I sent out contracts and advances um, yesterday. Um, and, uh, we'll probably crowdfund those in batches, um, because they're short, they're 16 pages a piece, um, and that's the, uh, the printers would really rather do four or six of them at a time rather than one of them at a time. Um, and then there's two more Dungeon Fantasy role-playing. So I'm, I'm very much enmeshed these days with, uh, Steve's Action Games from a licensing perspective. Um, but if things go well, uh, in the next 12 months, I'm looking at something like 12 to 14 releases. So a lot on the plate. Um, not too late to pre-order Lost Hall if you want a uh, fun Viking-flavored uh, um, uh, romp. Um, but uh, that's kind of what's going on for Gaming Ballistic. Can you can you possibly put a link uh, oh, yes. for that? Uh, I'd like to check it out, Douglas. Try to support yep. all you guys. Who would like to go next? Oh, what the heck! Um, since nobody else is speaking, uh, you for? I'm sorry. No, no, all you good? Okay, for FASA, uh, <laughs> Earth Dawn. Earth Dawn. We have the Elven Nations book in layout. It's going to be going into release uh, pretty much any day now. Uh, this will. Finally close out the, the Earth Dawn 4th Edition Kickstarter. Sorry it's taken so long, folks. Uh, but we are releasing the last book in the Kickstarter, and that will close that out. Once that goes out, we have the city-state of Iapos, which uh, is run by a family of evil magicians who, are who have a patron of uh, a dragon who was thrown out of the Council of Great Dragons of our save. So, you know, a whole city-state of, of basically very nasty people 
Uh, and then we have the Arancia source book, which is legendary France and is going to bring in uh, some different views on how magic uh, is implemented. For 1879, uh, the steampunk uh, fantasy game, the player's companion is done, has gone to layout, it in, and the GM's companion is in the last couple of chapters. These books open up the toolbox for the game and give the players and GMs the tools they need to expand the game world themselves, uh, how to build new character classes, how to build new spells, new monsters, so on and so forth. The, the systems are all there for expanding the, uh, the, the game world yourselves, plus a bunch of example material of how you can do this. Uh, the <clears throat> Fort Alice source book, which is the main British uh, settlement in the Grosvenor world, is underway. We've also altered the uh, schedule a bit. We have pushed back the Paris source book and pulled forward the New York source book. So we will be doing a North American setting for our next Earth source book. Uh, it'll be New York City in 1881 when Manhattan was the wickedest city in the United States. And if you don't believe me, just look up the history. It was something else indeed. This year's Gen Con scenario for 1879 is The Worm in the Big Apple, where um, the dragon that lives title. up by... Yep. Great title. Thank you. <laughs> the dragon that lives up by Central Park has loaned out an item to a museum exhibit, and somebody had the brass ones to lift it. And so your party has to find this thing and get it back to the dragon before he comes looking for it himself. And you're going to be chasing all over Manhattan to do this. It's going to be fine. A little bit of time pressure, you know. Got an angry dragon to deal with. <laughs> nice. Cool. That's well, if you got any links for those, uh, definitely drop yeah. them in the chat. Will do. Yeah. Will do. Yeah. Uh, I can go next if you like. Sure. So, uh, Saga RPG, we are just a very... Small company. Um, we actually took a, a two-year break until about six months ago, and we're back at it. We have three releases planned this year, um, not ten. Uh, these are all uh, part of uh, part of a mix between a mini campaign setting and a, and sort of a Pathfinder adventure path that we've been working on. Uh, each release is going to be between 150 and 200 pages. We just put the first one out last week uh, for print and PDF. We'll be going up this week for that. Um, our setting is uh, its called the Darkwood setting, and it's a cross between an American frontier setting with some high fantasy in it. Um, so if anyone has watched Deadwood, the show before the HBO show Deadwood, that's a big inspiration for this. Um, right now, these are Pathfinder compatible. We are interested in potentially making some products for some different systems. So if anyone has some opinions or advice on that or uh, a system they'd like to see something for, I'd, I'd always be willing to take a look at it. 
Um, and I can put I can put the link for what we have here in the window as well. Anybody else? Ah, me. Yes. Um, let's see here. I'll be speaking for both Laramie, who was on at the very beginning of the show, and myself. Uh, we work for the tavern here. And if you want to support the tavern, uh, Tinker has a Patreon. At, uh, oh, pretty much patreon.com slash Tinkar's Tavern. And here's the link for that. And if you'd like to support the podcast, Finally got this uh, support podcast go working with Anchor, and you can do so here. Um, a little plug, we have the Coast to Coast coming this week, which is an exact replica of what we do here at the Breakfast Club, just on Friday evenings instead of Sunday mornings. And for that, a little plug for who's going to be there. I think, Douglas, you're on the first premiere episode of that, aren't you? Uh, which one? Coast to Coast? Yeah. I'll have to check my schedule. I'm sure that you're correct. Well, I can tell you right now. Yes, you right, are. Right. Okay. <laughs> I, I signed up for everything, so. I know, I know. Uh, I'm going to be on there. Bad Mike's going to be on there. I, 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 think, I think I somehow ended up hosting like 90% of the Coast to Coast in February for some weird reason. Did indeed. And Carl will also be there. So us five are on the premiere episode. Douglas Pex, Bad Mike, Tinkar, and Carl. Um, and for the RSS feed, uh, it is pinned in this channel for future reference. For those that want to listen to the podcast, it'll both be the Breakfast Club and the upcoming Coast to Coast. There is the RSS feed code for that. Um, so yes, support the tavern, support the podcast, and all the other gamers. Yay. Oh, and before I unmute everybody... I like to give a special thanks to Todd, who records our productions. Todd from Hexpress, you're an awesome job, man. Just wanted to let you know. Give credit where credit is due. And now we will unmute the audience for Q and A. All right, should be open up to everybody. If you're muted on your end, you'll have to unmute, or you can type your questions in the chat channel there, and we'll answer them in maybe the order received, maybe. It's always that brave first person to make these things go. Yeah. Do people need to drop and rejoin? Uh, no, I figured uh, it'll work around on uh, that. Um, they're disputed on I'll, their end. I'll, I'll, I'll throw something out there because uh, I enjoyed to talk about villains because uh, one of my favorite uh, villains when I was uh, uh, back in the 80s when I had the original D&D group was another uh, rival band of mercenaries or, well, adventurers. And they yeah. would uh, they would level with the characters. Uh, the characters would kill a few of them and then a few of them would come back and they'd, they'd kind of have this rivalry. And so one of my favorite moments is when they go to a village and they're looking, they're looking for these adventures. And 
this is they're about ninth level now. And they're, they they hate these guys at this point. They've been rival adventuring bands for you know since like third level or so. So they just absolutely detest these guys. And so they roll into town. They're like, hey, we're looking for these um these bad guys. And they describe them as like these villains. They're these villains, you know. They're they're really awful. They're these mercenary guys, and and they you know they they get. They basically they get paid to do this and that, and they, they go down to dungeons and they they steal everything out of there. And the guy's like, "That sounds exactly like your band, <laughs> your band of mercenaries." <laughs> He's like, "No, we're good guys. These are bad guys." He's like, "You sound exactly the same. The description you're giving me is any adventuring band that ever wandered through this town. You know, you're all a bunch of a holes. We hate we hate all of you adventurers and equally." And so the characters did have a moment of introspection, like, "Oh, wait a second. Yeah, that's kind of like us. It just..." We have different goals than they do, but other than that, yeah, we're pretty much exactly the same, the same kind of a holes as those guys. We're just, uh, we just think we're quote good guys, and they and we see them as the bad guys. But I, I always enjoyed bringing in the uh, flexible morality type thing, where you know it just depends on what side of the what side of the desk you're on, whether you're really the one of the bad guys or one of the good guys. You know, it's, it's kind of the, the whole concept of basically having uh, uh, the, the linear guild, <clears throat> the, the evil order of the stick, um, as, as kind of a barometer. It's like, if you ever find yourself doing worse things than the linear guild, maybe you need to rethink your life choices. It's kind of an interesting barometer for a fantasy role-playing game. I brought uh, I brought up in the chat earlier. They're, they're one of one of my favorite villains in just kind of a throwaway movie is Expendables Three. It's a uh, the, the the Mel Gibson character. Mel Gibson's an incredible actor too. He's like kind of like Tom Cruise. Just just forget about anything about his personal life. Just concentrate on his his cinema his cinema characters, and he does a great job. But he has, he's a he's a mercenary band that the Expendables is a you know out to to deal with and. There's just one moment where they capture him about the middle of the movie, and he makes this great speech about, you know, there's there's no difference about you and you and I except that just who pays us. He said, you know, but you're doing exactly what I'm doing. You're just doing it for the people you consider quote unquote good guys, and I'm doing it for the people you consider quote unquote bad guys. But we're in the exact same business, you know. Don't try to get your morality, you know, get on your high horse and say that we're doing this for good causes. You're doing it for money, just like I am. And I thought that was a great, just a great speech in a in a really pedestrian movie <laughs> but it was but, but mel gibson makes it great too you know, just his whole character but it, it's true you know a lot of times the the line between villain and i mean the, the the great example is batman the joker i mean they're both psych pretty much psychotic but it's just that they they've uh managed to channel it in different directions you know uh in, in any in any sane world batman would be locked up along with all the other arkham criminals but you know in, in but because of comic book considerations he's he's the quote-unquote hero even though he does what he what he does is pretty pretty creepy. I'm gonna flip it back on our audience here. Um, who are your favorite villains, audience members? Give me more than one. I, I'll, well, I'll throw it again. <laughs> my, my favorite Marvel comic villain is Doctor Doom, and I always liked him as a kid because he. One of the things I think is his greatest, his greatest uh, attribute is he thinks he's right. You know, and that's that's the thing about a villain. If, if a villain's just doing bad things for bad reasons, that's just he's just it's just worthless. That's 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 not a very good character. But if he thinks he's right, and if he if he was really the boss of everything, everything would be so much better. Uh, that adds a really good layer of conviction. Yeah. <clears throat> 
to the to the villainy of him. And I always liked Doctor Doom. You know, we're talking seventies, eighties, you know, sixties, seventies, eighty era, era Doctor Doom. I don't know about much what's happened to him in the last twenty years or so, but I just love the fact that he just, you know, he he just figures he's right. You know, I'm, I'm doing this because I'm I'm right and you're wrong, and, I, and I'm really powerful. And I'm really I'm really intelligent, and I'm going to you know going to do this because you're you know i'm i'm so much smarter than you i'm i, I can see where this is going and i'm you know i'm the one who's uh gonna set everything right i kind of like priest answer here uh the devil himself best villain ever does nothing just waits simply exist kind of deal i like that it's evil because it exists I never quite understood how the how the prison warden became the 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 bad guy, but you know that's another thing entirely. Yeah, <laughs> that is another name for for the devil, huh? Oh, what was that character? Well, anyway, the 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 sweet innocent evil characters I do like. Um, Misery, that's the movie. Um. Ooh. Yeah, oh, yeah, I think that's a great villain oh. character. Yeah, Terrif terrifying yeah. on a whole different level. Do you know who did that surprisingly well? Uh, there was the the episode where Veer Koto meets his future wife, and and she's uh, the the daughter of the person who's in charge of killing all the Narn and putting him in slave camps and all that stuff. And she's all sweet and, and, and pretty and, oh, but, but of course we have to kill them all. Well, that um, was it, one of the most endearing villains ever that came out of nowhere when she started speaking that purification tripe. It did, it did. But, and and it, was, it was a great moment in why you don't necessarily need orcs. <laughs> Yeah, the innocent evil, the, right? So, but yeah, that was that was a that was kind of a fun, uh, just very earnest and well-meaning, and well, yeah. Of course, has, we has have to bought, kill them all. Has bought into the evil of the of her culture. That was a. I, I just want to, you know. It, it it had a great run. Um, it didn't get canceled prematurely, so to speak, hmm. although it almost did. But B five is just still great TV. You know, surprisingly, one of those innocent evils I didn't think it pulled off very well was like uh, Damien. What's the name of that series? The characters, the Omen. There we go. It, it it's supposed to be innocent evil, but I never got that vibe of it is innocent evil. The child is the devil, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and that, that whole morality didn't get pulled off well. I like the film, don't get me wrong, but for the sake of our conversation. No, no, you're right, Pex. That child is pure evil. <laughs> there's, that's there's, there's that's a, a perfect example of like explicit evil in a mm -hmm. villain that's supposed to be implicit evil in a villain. Uh, there's a... Uh... There's an episode of Angel, I want to say it's in the first season, where he and he and the crew rush to kick a demon out of a child because the child is possessed, only to realize that the evil was really coming from the child, and the demon tried to possess his soul, but the child had no soul. 
And so actually it, when at the end of it, it was just an evil kid. That was a nice little twist. Oh, what about like uh, from that old movie, uh, Nurse Ratchet from uh, I think One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? It's a good example of like a lawful neutral villain because basically she's just, I'm just here to enforce all the rules that are already in the books, but I'm going to do it the most horrifically, you know, terrible way I can. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually breaking the law, breaking the rules here. I mean, you, you took the boat out, so you're going to get lobotomized because that's just what we do. So I think that's a, that's a good example. It's probably one of the really lawful neutral type villain that that's right. Oh, you, you brought up Angel. Actually, actually, the Buffy and Angel verse is a really good uh, example of, of villains that are just way that are very, very three dimensional because they are, they have all kinds of facets. Because at any one point in both shows, uh, characters a villain, then a good guy, then a villain, then a good guy, and it gets especially like Angel, the titular character. He's you know he's a he's a villain, and he becomes good, then he becomes bad, then he back and forth. So at some certain point, you just have to judge people on their actions, not what they're saying about, you know, what they're saying. You say, well, is this, is this a good or a bad thing this person's doing this? Because, you know, that he's gone back and forth so many times, and, and a lot of characters in that in that's both, like I said, the Buffy verse do that. Yeah. Where they're, they're good, good, bad, yeah. good, bad. He even makes it explicit, you know, if, what is it, uh, he says... If, 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 what is it? If what we do is all we are, all we are is what we do. It's one of those, like, you know, uh, mystery men. If it's black, it's white. If it's white, it's black. You know, if you don't master your rage, rage will become your master. But it was, it was very well done. Um, and, uh, uh, just sort of saying, look, you know, it's can you ever tip the scales of that much evil? Well, no, but you can try. Yeah, Sp Spike's a good example of that in that in the in the Buffyverse too, because he starts out bad, uh, becomes good, and then realizes at a certain point that that all that he realizes, oh, all the stuff I did was just was just shitty. I mean, I was a bad, I was a he horrible, horrible person for you know a, de a century. Okay. And so yeah, maybe you know, I, could, I, I don't know if I can make up for it completely, but I'm going to try to do good at this point on, and maybe it'll it'll do, you know help something. But he does it in his own, of course, Spike way. He's not a he's not a quote good good guy, but he's he's not going to do bad any longer. Yeah, they actually play the the Agent Smith bit a bit because in Angel because they yeah. say, oh, you know, Angel's going to go fight right. the home, going to go to the home office. Yeah. And he gets there and it's right where he started from. It all kind of sort of made me think of that. And, yeah. You know, I love the first Matrix movie. I, I actually was one of the lucky ones who knew absolutely nothing about it when I went into it. So it floored me. Yeah, me too. I don't want to get into the second two as <laughs> much. Since, you know. Yeah. They're not the worst. Jump in the spoon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I do think Agent Smith is an interesting uh an interesting villain, right? It's it's uh, uh an inhuman motivation that becomes more human as 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 the uh story continues. I think he's probably the best developed character in that whole series. 
I think another one of my favorite villains is from the movie Seven, Kevin Spacey's character. Oh, jeez. Oh, see, I have, a big, I have a big problem with that villain, but I'll go, go ahead and I'll tell you why. Go, go ahead. Sure, sure. I, I just like it because it's all it's it's he's crazy, but he is superly intellectually smart in uh, his reason, not his reasoning, but his uh, methodology, I guess. Um, and he's very well read and stuff. But go ahead, Mike. Uh, your counter argument to him being my problem is I know people love that movie. My problem with that movie has always been that um, it's ridiculous. He can do the exact right thing at always the exact right time. That everything works out exactly the way it's supposed to. It, it's, it, it just reeks so much of me of I, I'm the screenwriter. I'm going to make this happen, whether or not it's logical or illogical. It's just going to happen because I want it to happen. Because I I ever watched that movie and thinking any one of two dozen points. If somebody had walked in a different direction or taken a right instead of a left or bent down instead of stood up, his whole entire plan, master plan would have fallen apart because everything depended on him getting all these people in these exact right places, exact right times. Kind of like a, I just, I remember watching that going, this is, you know, all, all this person would have to do is say, no, I'm not going to do this. And, and then what's, what's Kevin Spacey supposed to do is because, you know, the, at the very end when he wants them to go to the certain spots, so they can get this certain box at a certain time. All they had to say was no. We're, 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 well, we're going to go over here instead. And so, what happens to his master plan? <laughs> it just all falls apart. And he's like, "Oh well, I had a box with well, your, wife, your wife's head, and I was going to deliver it to you, but now I guess I guess I can't, darn it." So, I mean, you know, that, that's the problem I had with it. That they made him almost omnipotent. I, I know it's it's more of a parable or allegory or whatever, but he's just so omnipotent in that, and it's just so silly that you know they just couldn't make one, like I say, one different decision just changes the whole whole thing and all of a sudden he's not omnipotent anymore he's just a you know he's just a psychopath and that tried to get you to go here instead of there and you went the wrong direction well uh, a counter argument to that is he did adjust his plan that whole box thing wasn't supposed to happen for a while so his whole overarching plan did change because they caught him technically midway through before he turned himself in so he had to speed up his timetable so i don't yeah, think he, he is yeah. omnipotent like you're trying to make him out to be but i do think but he's, 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 he's railroad but he still controlled it though, because he's the one that went to the police station and turned himself in. So they didn't actually catch him. He just realized that he was gonna, you know, he 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 taken the game as far as he could, and it was time to end the game. So in a way, he did control the whole last situation by turning himself in and say, "Okay, yeah, I did," you know, and he's covered with with blood, blah blah blah, whatever. Uh, like I said, I just I remember seeing everybody talking about how brilliant the movie was. I was like, "Well, he just got lucky like eighteen times. <laughs> That's all that happened because anything you know could have happened there could have." Anything different than what have happened would have just changed the whole planet. And I, I just movies like that drive me crazy because it just reeks so much of screenwriter makes this happen because I want this to happen. I'm not letting I'm not letting events logically proceed. I'm I'm giving you a series of events in this certain order, and it's all going to happen this way. And um, I mean, some of the other examples I like I, I like uh, I like Die Hard a lot as a movie. I think it's just a fun guilty pleasure because everything changes so much. Like the villain's plan is to do this, but 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 um. Bruce Willis screws everything up, but they still adapt, you know, then, okay, I'm going to do this instead. Then Bruce Willis does that. They do that. I, I love that kind of back and forth, you know, between Hans Gruber and, and Bruce Willis were just going back and forth and they're try, trying to outsmart each other. Now I, I like that much better because, you know, Hans Gruber's a great villain. He's not omnipotent though. Cause he's, he, you know, he screws up. I mean, but, but, but he still tries to keep pace. I, I, that to me, that's a much more believable, I, I like that villain a lot more than the guy that just can't seem to do anything wrong and just can't make a wrong decision no matter what. I mean, he's always thinking like um, like Doug brought up. It's always the aha. I had I knew that was going to happen, so I did this. At a certain point, you're like, okay, you know that that's it's getting silly now. 
but, but that was just my, I mean, a lot of people think seven is a great movie and, and it's a great villain. I mean, I, I understand their point. It's just that just drives me crazy when I, when I get in villains, I, I don't like villains like that. I guess is the point. I like, oh, it's okay. I to disagree. You're fine. I, uh, I just disagree uh, with your disagreement. So there, yeah, <laughs> I, uh, uh, yeah, what was it? Um, no, come back to me. I had, I had a point, but I can't remember. <laughs> Uh, Andrew made a point about the yeah the railroad. That, that I guess that's that's a good way to say it. It's a railroad. It's kind of a railroad. You you can't get off the track no matter what because the, the you know this this has to happen at this point. I mean at the whole I mean I know first I'm watching seven at the end I'm going why are they doing what this guy wants him to do? He's making him go exactly the one place he wants to go. Why not just say no? We're not going to go there. The reasons they give are so lame. Why they would do what he wanted them to do? It doesn't make any sense. They well, they did what he wanted to do because the bodies were out there, and that's what people do in the real world. If you uncover bodies, they usually take yeah, you to the location. Yeah, yeah but the, the the timeline was so compressed, and it was like it's going to happen right now, and this and that. And, you know, and then like right, and and they justify that. But I'm going to agree with you. There is a real real, but they justify that with his IQ being so high. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I like I said, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a I'm picking on this movie. There's a million movies that do this, but this is just such yeah. a high, highly regarded movie that does. And I'm just like, okay, I don't, you know, I've I've seen any member of number of Chuck Norris movies that the, the villain does oh, okay. that kind of thing, and nobody thinks that guy's a you know he does the exact same thing. Aha, Chuck Norris, you think you did this, but actually, I. I'm a clone, and this is my real guy over here. You know, so I'm thinking, okay, like Scooby Doo style, yeah. You think you fooled me, but you really haven't fooled me. You know, one, uh, and I remember it now. One of the things that I actually enjoyed about the uh, the Deadpool sequel is that a couple of times he breaks the fourth wall, and well, no surprise there, uh, and says, "Huh, lazy writing," but in the end. He fixes everything with the laziest plot device ever. <laughs> it's absolutely lazy writing. So he actually lampshades himself, which is a spectacularly Deadpool thing to do. But, you know, in the end, it's like, you know, I, you know even in the opening credits, I can't believe you killed her in the first scene. Um, and, and then, of course, by the end of the movie, he's used the laziest plot device ever, which is time travel to uh to undo that and you know really who doesn't really need more movies with marina bachran in them so i'm okay with that uh but but i always just liked it because you know he would throw out these really sarcastic comments about movie producers and lazy writing and whatever and in the end the laziest of lazy was what solved the problem well i still remember watching superman the christopher reeves superman the first time, and then the he turns back the planet to turn back time, and I just shudder. I'm like, no. I know. I just think it's so funny that we've had to we've had to develop lampshading as a trope because it's just so true that you know so many things happen in TV shows and movies that are just ridiculous. You have to have the, at one point you have to have the main character go, "This is ridiculous. I can't believe this is happening like this." And now we have a whole term for it, lampshading, because it's it's such a device now that. You know that we have to do it. like this. This would never happen. I know we'll have one of the. I, I know we'll have, I, I, one, we'll have one of the characters say it could never happen. That'll that that totally uh, you know totally makes it okay. At that point, it becomes ironically self-referential. Yeah, that was, how many, uh, we're being ironic now. Yeah, it's great. This is great writing. Now we're ironic. <laughs> how many Star Trek episodes do we see them go back in time? Even the original man, it was ridiculous. 
There was a line in one of the Voyager episodes where they're on Earth, uh, and Janeway flatly says, I swore when I was in Command Academy that I would never get involved with time travel. <laughs> oh, it's great. Although, although I have to admit, I do appreciate lampshading more than I appreciated, like, you know, old 50s shows where just things are ridiculous happen and they're, they're, their solution was just don't just don't say anything about it. <laughs> this would never happen in a million years, but we're just not, we're just going to skip past that and keep going. You're like, wait a second. So they, they, <sighs> they captured a mass murderer and, and they took him out of the cell to you know, question him and there's only one cop in the room. That doesn't make you know, sense. So at least now they'll, they'll say, wait a second, why did you take them out of the room when there was only one cop in the room? You know? So I, oh, I, God. I, I call out in every movie I see like the, uh, the one inept guard at like the museum that's supposed to guard these most valuable treasures, and there's just one guy, and he is like mall cop. <laughs> Hurts me every time. You you can trick him by throwing a pebble in the other direction, and he walks down the hall. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah, this is where the evil. Good. Now this is where the evil overlord's handbook comes in. And where, you know, in, in gaming, hey, you know, that guy you're up against, he's read the Evil Overlord's handbook. Don't expect this to work. Or they leave a clue behind or some riddle or some nonsense. Now, there was a, a storyline with the Riddler in Batman where... He flatly tells Batman, I did not want to leave the clue. I found myself compelled to go back and leave the, the clue for you. I think I need help. I just couldn't help myself. Yeah, I mean, he flatly asks Batman for, get me into therapy or something. I've, I've got compulsive behavior here that is becoming a real problem. I think that's why we, we we love a lot of the Batman villains because that they that their their compulsions have become their characters to to an incredible extent. There's there's actually some really good uh, arcs with the Riddler, uh, both both um, back in the day and then modern, where they where they where they play up his compulsion as you know that that's why he's crazy because he he can't he would be this great master criminal if he didn't have this really insane compulsive need to leave a riddle to try to trick Batman. It's all about, it's not about the crime. It's all about tricking Batman. He just can't do it. So it just frustrates him. And it just it adds to a cycle of madness, even worse. He gets crazier and crazier. There was, there was actually even one, one arc. I think it was uh, probably about 10 years ago where he becomes a hero or we're actually, he's like, why am I doing this? Be just to outthink Batman. I I'm going to start uh, using my powers for good. <laughs> and so he starts solving crimes. And so it, it, that, that's a great character that, or a great example of a character's compulsion defines him that makes him such a good character. They play that nice and gentle in one of the Justice League uh, animated series where the Flash goes to the trickster. He's like, you're off your meds again, aren't you? Yeah. Okay, go turn yourself in. Okay, thanks, Flash. Orion mm -hmm. uh, and Batman are like, all right, we're going to beat these guys up. And he's like, no, 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 no. This is my town. We do this differently. Uh, there, there, there are so many bits in in Justice League Unlimited that are Love that great. Series. It's so good, and and it's another one of those like Bugs Bunny Roadrunner, where if you're watching it as an adult, um, 
uh, if you're watching it as as an adult, you're like, oh, I cannot believe they got that in there. Like uh, uh, Lex Luthor's old girlfriend, the sorceress, pushes Lex Luthor, but it's really Flash into the bathroom, into the restroom, and the door closes, and then Flash says, "That's not restful." <laughs> and, and my wife and I are trying not to break up. I mean, you know, my daughter is oblivious to it for now. And I was like, wow, that that okay then. There's not another one that good. I was just saying it's a great show. It's a little lag. So I have another one. Um Leon the Professional. I love that character, but he is in the end of the day a villain. Yeah, if you're not familiar, just the assassin guy who, uh, yeah, just go see the movie. You can't see any more than that or I'll spoil it all to death. That, that's almost become a trope now, the assassin with the heart of gold. You know, that's, that, that, that's, that was great. The professional, uh, that was probably one of the first movies I remember that happening at, but I think now it's becoming a trope almost. Like, you know, he, he kills people for a living, but, you know, if you're a little kid or a, you know, a, a girl with a homely face or, a, you know, a fat person, he'll help you out. You know, he's, he's, he's there to help you out. But, you know, if, if you're, he's paid to kill, though. And so it's almost becoming a trope that that, uh, that assassin that just, lo- you know, that just also has a human side to him. But they, they do a great job. Professional is a great, that's a great movie. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's definitely recommended. How, how many of these portrayals of villains? I started thinking this because I can't remember what you were talking about when we were talking about one of the villains. Someone was talking about earlier, but how many is because the actor just such does such a great job with that character? And you think if a lesser actor had that part, it would just be who cares, you know, or, or that's just silly. But you know, a lot of times if you have a if you have a great actor portray these guys, it just you know it makes it so so much better. I well, think it's night and day difference because you can have all the great writing in the world, but if your performer can't pull it off, well, the writing's not going to save you. Yeah, that goes, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, and that and that goes both ways. Um, Spike was supposed to be a one or two shot character, but they loved him so much that they kept bringing him back and making him more and more uh, uh, strong in the part. Um, and the flip side, you know, you look at. Uh, uh, Episode one, Phantom Menace. I mean, look at that cast. There's not a one of them that barely hasn't won at least an Academy Award or two. And yet the writing was not good enough for the actors that they cast to play the parts. He, he did the impossible. He, he made Natalie Portman boring, which I, I just I, I just to this day boggles my mind. She's she's the right. most bland, bland boring character. She's such a great actress yet. That just that oh yeah the the writing definitely does it has to be both the writing and the and the acting. Well, we should throw directing into this hat as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're gonna do it. Now another one uh, to throw in here is Kenneth Branagh as Iago in Othello, mm-hmm. the nineteen ninety five production with Lawrence Fishburne as Othello. Kenneth Branagh's Iago walks off with the movie. <laughs> and just flatly, he is such a consummate villain as he manipulates and directs and and you know carefully stokes this simmering fire that is burning in Othello and drives him to you know it, it, it's and it's Shakespeare. It's good writing to begin with, but. Brenna just did such a great job with it. 
I'm going to throw one of my... We're not, we're not going to call them villains. We'll call them creatures. And one of my favorite creature villains, I guess, is uh, the Xenomorphs from Aliens. They're just pure evil, and they want to exterminate all human life or use them for their own purposes of breeding and whatnot. But they are evil. <laughs> I wouldn't know if I call them a villain because they are creature types, but eh, I, they're one of my favorites. They're not just going to use you to reproduce. They're going to play with their food. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're horrifying. And I have to agree with you. I, I might actually say that Alien, the original Alien, may be my favorite film of all time. I, I wanted, I'll just throw this in there as a brag because I just feel like it. Uh, 1984, when I was in England, I got to see Kenneth Branagh do uh, Henry V live. Oh, at, nice. at, at Stratford, oh, Avon. and that that was before he. I think he'd done like one or two movies. I, I, I don't oh. remember it all. But I remember thinking, man, that guy is really good. He's doing a really good job with that part. And of course, he's gone. He, he I, God, I can't remember. I can't think of. A, he's done like ten Shakespeare movies, but I mean, he's just he's a. But he also does other stuff. Too. He's just an incredible actor. I mean, any, any part he plays is going to be just incredible. Well, back to our actor comparison, we'll use the next generation, like how many people can act in comparison to Patrick Stewart. And it was just funny having anybody on camera next to him during the acting. So I think the actor does make a world of difference, along with the writing, along with directing. And I think if all three are a win, you have an amazing film on your hand. But if anything drops the ball, that's what makes things a little less of a enjoyment experience. Yeah, Phantom Menace being top example there. <laughs> yeah, looking at you. Mm. Well, I'm going to ask: Are there any questions any of the audience members want to ask, or any last comments on our villains and other things we've talked about today regarding them? <laughs> All right, gang. Uh, again, next week we're going to have our first premiere of the Coast to Coast show. And then next week uh, we're going to have some new people that have never been on the Breakfast Club on Sundays. I'll post their names in a bit here in the uh, uh, live chat schedules channel. All right. Well, thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate everyone pitching in and having a good conversation. Until next week, sports fans. Yes. Oh, just before we go, sorry. It's a, a priest says Mark Hamill <laughs> making. No, 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 no. It just reminded me of something. The entire movie of um, No Way Out with Kevin Costner. Mm, yeah. Entire movie. You're right. You're right. <laughs> yep. <laughs>